Welcome to this episode of the Strip Till Farmer podcast series. I'm Michaela Pogner, Strip Till Farmer's technology editor. Today's episode of the Strip Till Farmer podcast series is brought to you by the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment. Dawn is bringing today's innovative farmers a new strip till product from the regenerative ag focused underground agriculture brand. The Pluribus Light is priced like a strip freshener, but it offers the features and performance to be used in the fall or spring as a primary strip tiller or strip freshener. It's the perfect complement to a cover crop system that just needs a little blacker strip. Check out the Pluribus Light at dawnequipment.com. Parker Cohn is in the business of rehabbing soil. He's the CEO of California-based Performance Resources Management a company that offers customized fertility and soil health recommendations for land of all types, from farm fields to golf courses to the San Francisco Giants ballpark. In today's episode of the Strip Till Farmer podcast, editor Brian O'Connor talks with Parker about how PRM designs biological management programs for growers, new technologies he's putting to use to improve soil health, and much more. The first question, tell me about yourself and what's your academic background? How did your company get started? Yeah, so my academic background, I grew up in Boise, Idaho, went to public school, and then I visited California when I was 11 years old. I visited my uncle here and fell in love with it. He took me around to Santa Clara and Stanford, and I saw palm trees and ocean and wonderful weather and professional ballparks, San Francisco Giants, Mm -hmm. you know, this culture that coming from a, a small town in the Northwest, Boise, Idaho. Um, was very alluring to me. And so I set my intention to go to college, university in California, applied to a bunch of schools, ended up landing at University of San Diego, right just above SeaWorld in in San Diego, and uh, studied mechanical engineering there. I I got a a pretty strong academic scholarship, and that's really what, what was the determining factor of why I attended USC? I actually went blind. So <laughs> I didn't I didn't visit the campus before move-in day. So yeah. it was it was it was an awesome experience. USC was a great place for me. I studied mechanical engineering there. And I kind of kind of studied an emphasis in in, in water and design engineering. So I, I did my senior design project was a water purification technology that that I worked on and honed. And, and then I think attending USD really set me up for success. There's a great, great community, great career center, uh, connected me with internships, working for a solar design company. I got some tremendous experience there where that helped to form the business model of what I do today. And then USD gave me an opportunity to participate in the social innovation challenge in 2015, where I pitched the water purification project that I worked on for my senior design project in engineering, pitched that in that competition and ended up winning and getting getting some, some uh, attention from that, which landed me an incredible job right out of school, working as a strategy analyst for, for a startup company in, in downtown San Diego. So San Diego has been very sticky for me <laughs> and it keeps pulling me back. It's where I live now. And it's very central to, to the regions that I cover right now. So worked at that job for a couple of years, got a ton of experience and really felt a little disconnected from what, what my, what my core calling was, which, you know, I've really felt, really felt tied to the water problems uh, in the Southwest and around the world. So 
one of the leading causes of death in the world is waterborne illness, primarily affects women and children. You know, young children are the most predisposed to E. coli and infection picked up through water. And I think the 2014 statistic was like 1.4, 1.5 million people per year, which is substantial. And it's the, the leading cause of, of death in the world. And we really don't, we really don't talk about it. So uh, I kind of shifted went from working for, you know, a, a startup company to pursuing a career in performance resource management, where I'm going out and helping farmers, golf courses, cities, municipalities, improve the health of their soil, reduce their water use substantially, reduce chemical inputs, reduce labor, you know, streamline and optimize their business model to um, produce healthier, more nutritious food and use less water and chemicals in order to grow healthier crop, which translates to healthier, healthier soil, healthier plants, healthier people, healthier livestock. So um, really aligned with, with the water passion that I have and I think is a, is a great launching point for, for what's, what's to come. I had the privilege to review your website shortly before we began our interview. Um, and it, it seems like a lot of the results category focuses on golf courses. Um, do you see PRM as primarily an agriculture company or as a golf course company? Yeah, so golf courses are a, are a market for us. Golf courses, professional sports fields. We work with the San Francisco Giants at Oracle Park. You know, we're solving the same problems on golf courses and professional sports fields as we're solving for farmers, right? We're affecting soil health, which affects everything else from irrigation management, fertility management, sports fields, renovation budgets are it's it costs a lot of money to maintain a professional sports field. And so what we're able to do with our soil science and what what our technology brings is the ability to extend the life of one of these ballparks because we're solving the core problems in the soil, which are the reason that they need to renovate. So we come in, extend the life of a field a few years. Every year we extend that field. That's about four, five, six hundred thousand dollars of savings to go into that capital improvement budget makes makes the totally transforms the, the operation. Further, there's environmental impacts to that too. So like if we're not tearing out a whole field, taking all that material, we're using you know, dump trucks, heavy equipment, machinery that are very fuel inefficient, the carbon footprint of replacing these fields is high. So if we can reduce the carbon footprint of the field, make the stand last longer um, with using less resources, water, labor, chemicals, it's a win-win-win for everybody. So back to your point, is this, a, is this an ag business? Is this a, is this a landscape professional sports turf? It's we really cover all the markets with performance resource management and golf and professional sports turf is really where we've gained a lot of traction where the value proposition is just understood immediately. You know, we go out there and we eliminate a black layer problem at Oracle park in, in six weeks. And that's the core reason that they, one of the main reasons they have to renovate is this problem that forms in the soil. Um, so so we are growing in, you know, in ag and in and in golf and in sports turf. The ag side of the of the business, there's there's a the biggest value proposition for the planet is in agriculture. Absolutely, 
but the market the market is a little bit slower to develop on the ag side to new technology you know it's more more ingrained in their management practices and there's a lot of there's a lot of convention in farming and agriculture just just uh, there's a lot more light being shined on sports turf and golf courses during this drought to make to make change that improves water efficiency that reduces the cost of operation that that substantially affects the capital improvement budget you know where farms haven't had the pressure that these other industries have had and i think that's why you see there's more more present there um, in golf and and sports well and it certainly seems like um in your neck of the woods particularly san diego california the the likelihood of increased water pressure going forward is certainly something that's probably on everybody's minds um, with the recent decision i think to to hold or or not as release much water into the colorado river i believe and and there's been a lot of uh, kind of agricultural response to that um so i you know it seems like if nothing else this is something so have you seen i guess the question would be have you seen increased interest in this kind of thing um as a result of uh changing environmental conditions that we're seeing across the united states absolutely the the changing environmental conditions here here in the southwest you know we have we have less water available because we're in this mega drought we're in the worst drought that we've ever recorded and and many we're much of the population is insulated from it we really we as a population don't really see it but but on the farms and on the the golf courses and it's we're starting to see it more so it's kind of a repeat of you know, 2015 we had a pretty 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 big drought down here but we're seeing legislation come through where you know uh, in la there's 35 percent water cut for municipal users and there's watering restrictions you can only water on certain days of the week and that's those are those are lifestyle those are lifestyle changes they they're starting to affect they're starting to affect people because you have to go and update your irrigation clock or you're at risk for getting a, a fine for irrigating on the wrong day or using too much water our water bills are going up as well so you look at you look at the declining and what's affecting farmers as well is you don't just have less water available right the quality of the water has deteriorated we have more we have more salt more bicarbonates more chemicals in the water minerals call it minerals in the water from that it's the water's picking up because there's not as much water flowing so it's more concentrated rather than more dilute and so we see things like salt stress showing up in avocado orchards right around me here in here in san diego and fallbrook we see we see a lot of salt stress as we pump our as we pump our wells, you know, and pump the water out of them. The the more concentrated the salt gets, the worse quality there is. The lower the quality of the water, the harder it is to to grow healthy plants. And so we need to start. We start farmers start looking for solutions for buffering salts in the profile. You know, how do we improve the health of the soil? Because we're headed in a in a direction that is not sustainable for crop production here. So how do we go about buffering these salts, maintaining our plant health, buffering these salts through the soil so we can, so we can still grow avocados here? All right. So give me your elevator pitch for the services that you offer. Like if elevator. I'm a farmer, how do you make the case that this is something I need? So if you're a farmer, I'm going to identify what your biggest need is. So if you're a produce farmer, you till your soil 
three, four times a year. You go through and you have a massive, massive budget for, for ripping, plowing, disking your land. And so my pitch to you is by working with me, we're going to restore the health of your soil. We're going to come out, establish a baseline, design a biological management program specifically for your tillage, for your compaction issues that you have on your land. What we're going to do is we're going to come out, we're going to take some samples, we're going to take some measurements, design a program, implement it, and we're going to guarantee you a reduction in your fuel costs and your fuel burn and your tillage costs. In addition, we're going to track how much yield improvements we see, our nitrogen balance, you know, how much more efficiently we're using our nutrients from the profile of the soil to the plant. And we're going to capture that in yield and in quality. So for instance, I had this conversation last year, started working with a, a big produce farm. And the deal was, I will show you a 10% reduction in your fuel costs and your cost for tillage guaranteed or free. And they're like, are you kidding? Yeah, sign up. In four months, in four months, we saved 30% on fuel burn. And this is a split field. And this is not, this is John Deere operations center data, right? This is very big tractor, <laughs> lots of sensors, multi-million dollar tractor, lots of sensors, all connected documenting this in, in a data logger for John Deere. And I got that data from John Deere. So you look at what the fuel cost back then, it was two fifty a gallon, maybe three bucks for red diesel. Now we're, we're up at, I filled my truck up the other day, not with road diesel, but it was seven bucks a gallon. So you look at those savings and you translate it. So I try to make an economic argument for my, for my customer that hits their top one or two problems and solves it for them in a way that you can't say no, it's, it's guaranteed. I know I, I've done this so long that I know what we're gonna be able to do and what we're gonna be able to affect, especially if I look at your, your prior management practices, your annual production history, like what, what were we growing and what were our yields and what was our quality? We can look back at that and model out what our improvements are gonna be and ultimately make an economic case for our customer to use our, to use our services. That's interesting um, because a lot of the no-till farmers that I talk to on a daily basis uh, talk about the reductions um, that they see in diesel for shaping and plowing is the primary reason why they decide to adapt no-till in the first place. Um, so what beyond the savings that are inherent to the no-till model, um, which has been in operation in, in Kentucky continuously since, you know, 62 uh, and we see as uh, conservation tillage anyways, it's the majority practice in, in agriculture today. Is there an additional uh, ingredient or X factor that you can bring? Or is this uh, reflective of the kind of the mindset in California regarding no-till that it's just, there's these tilling practices are so deeply entrenched. And when we get in, I know the context is no-till and I, I knew this was gonna come up and be part of our conversation is, you know, I'm very, I'm very supportive of no-till, very supportive of regenerative agriculture and permaculture. I love it. How do we go from hundreds of thousands of acres of row crops to no-till? And that's where I provide a solution and a bridge. So what I'm able to do at scale with my systems is 
think of it as probiotics for the soil at scale. And we go out and we design this like a doctor. We go out and we, we design a, a biological management program that goes over the course of the year, that goes over the course of the season. So this isn't like a pump and dump type of program where you mix it, go out, spray it once, you get a big pump. And it's, this is, this is restoring the soil and it takes time to restore the soil. And so we design these programs in a way that can create a bridge now when we're burning, you know, 30% less, less diesel fuel across thousands of acres. Now, can we, can we, do we, do we really need to do that? Why are we tilling? We're tilling because of where we're thinking farmers, conventional farmers are thinking they're, they're adding air to the profile, reducing compaction, you know, and, and that's, that's what we've been programmed to do, we being the conventional agriculture industry. So I think there's a number of sustainable technologies out there that coincide with what I'm doing that can help bridge this gap from where we currently are to where we need to go. Because what we're doing conventionally across the Southwest is, is, not, is not sustainable. Our soil is, is dying. It more resembles concrete than, than soil. And, and you see increased disease because infiltration rates are down. Water standing on the surface causes more insect pressure. It's a great place for insects to lay larvae. And uh, you just kind of see these problems begin to exacerbate. And, and when we can roll out a solution that scales across thousands of acres and show like, hey, we're solving, we're solving these problems that, that, uh, that these, these practices have just been yeah, layering on more and more problems, like making them worse. So that's really my angle is, is we need to need to be able to implement technologies that make agronomic sense and economic sense to bridge the gap between where we are conventionally doing four foot rips with 900 horsepower tractors, right? We just get tractors don't even have wheels anymore. They're more like tanks. They got four tracks on them, eight tracks, on, you know, they're just, they're just massive. And that the solution, the conventional solution is just bigger equipment, more nitrogen, more chemicals, specialty products, wetting agents to get water to go down all these things where if we, if we, if we can create soil health solutions that scale for these folks integrated into their model, it can be a bridge to a more regenerative and sustainable future. You mentioned the biological component. There's a lot of interest among no-till farmers, because they're by nature early adapters, I guess they're, they're too stubborn not to change is the way that I think about it. But how do you integrate the, the biological component of this in, into your fixes? Is that a case-by-case -case basis? Can, is there an example you can point to of like, this is what we did for one farm and how we integrated a biological plan? Because one of the things that I've heard again and again is that there's a high degree of variability with a lot of proposed biological solutions. Um, and it can come down to, you know, the water temperature that you apply it as or the ambient air temperature can affect whether or not you see an improvement. You, you said soil testing is one component. What are, how, do, how do you approach that, that particular biology in particular? Yeah, so I'll start with the baseline. So we'll, we'll just kind of walk through the process and I'll give you a couple of examples of, from farms. Uh, mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll leave the, we'll, we'll stick to farms. So we go out and establish a baseline. So we'll go out and we'll take physical measurements, we'll take chemical measurements, we'll take biological measurements of the soil. Indicators that we can diagnose, where is the soil at? What can we do to improve it? Where are the deficiencies? 
We design a program based on our findings of the physical, chemical, and biological aspects of the soil. And then we design a program based off of that. So one example is, let's say, let's say we're working with a potato farm. Okay, potatoes are root crop. So we find one of the, one of the things that's unique about our, our programs for potatoes is we find that improving the health of the soil, we can specifically affect potatoes with different biology than we can affect, say, alfalfa or corn or wheat. And so by having a different ratio of the microbes to fungi, we can improve root crop. Let's just say it, so potato, let's just say root crops. We can improve root crop production by 10, 15%, as opposed to if we took that potato program and ran it on corn or alfalfa, we wouldn't see the same, we wouldn't see the same improvement. So with potatoes, there's, there's yield and production, right? There's also processing when they go out and they harvest and they run them through tumblers. Every time you run, you run produce through or run through tumblers to get the dirt off. You run the potatoes or um, the sugar beets or the onions, you run them through tumblers to get all this dirt off, to shake all the dirt off. Um, and so if the soil is healthier, it's easier to shake that dirt off. You don't have to run them through the tumbler so many times. And every time you run them through the tumbler, you lose a percentage of, of the yield because it just gets damaged or shredded. Um, so that's an instance for, for root crops or potatoes. Now, if we go out and we look at an alfalfa stand, the alfalfa stand is going to, we measure how you make money with alfalfa is going to be your quality. So what's your, what's your protein value of the hay? What's the feed value or relative feed value of that hay determines how much a bale goes for or how much a ton goes for. And as a farmer, your quality matters and your yield matters. So tons per acre. So when we go out and run a program on, on alfalfa, you know, we're looking for specific nutrient uptake to the alfalfa plant, right? To optimize the protein value and the feed content of that plant and while improving that yield in a sustainable way. Meaning when I define, when I say sustainable way, I mean, we don't get a pump and then a decline. We don't overwork the soil to create artificial gains. We create a steady increase that is sustainable and improvement over time when you compare to the you know, former five, 10, 15 years of production. So potatoes and root crops generally benefit from more fungi than we could add more fungi to, to the alfalfa stand and really not make any sort of difference that's measurable for the farmer. So where we're spending that money for the farmer, we got to make sure that they're seeing ROI at the end of the day. And as you're saying, it's a very complicated network of microbes and fungi and biological soil management is extremely overwhelming as a farmer when you got you got schedules you got equipment to maintain you got you got planting harvest water you have a pivot go down a pump go down i mean to layer this onto everything is really where we come in as you know as a specialist in biological soil management to partner with you and make sure that you have the best success possible 
one of the things that your website mentions is the use of drones. How do you implement, how do you employ drones as part of this? Thing? Drones and multispectral imagery is a phenomenal resource for us. We mainly use it. We've used it for one-off projects, like, you know, doing an irrigation audit for say, uh, say an olive, olive trees or almond trees, or you can see clogged emitters like very quickly when you're, when you're working with drones and you can cover a phenomenal amount of acreage with an incredible amount of detail. <laughs> You know, and just in in just a, a short thirty minute flight, that you practically couldn't even drive around a farm that quickly. So, uh, the way we use we use the drones is is <clears throat> we've got a setup where we can go out and we can fly and we can quantify what the yield, what the biomass is. You know, what the yields are going to be. Um, we can go out and we can actually see affected change in the soil through the plants. So the plants can communicate these soil health improvements by showing, you know, we measure using, throw some acronyms out there, NDVI, uh, NDRE, uh, so normalized differential vegetative index, normalized differential um, red edge index, uh, infrared, which is just kind of like a heat, heat sensor, if you, if you think of it. That way it measures the heat being reflected. We can, we can look at and track these improvements over time using objective forms of data, right? We go out and we fly this drone and we have plant health improvements that we're quantifying based off of the chlorophyll content or you know, the health of the plant, how green it is, right? The or how the bricks rating, right? Or the or or bricks. Bricks is more related to the sugar content, okay. but bricks and bricks and chlorophyll are going to have a relation to each other. So now I can go out and I can fly this drone over a couple hundred acres and show the impact, show the changes that we're making, you know, from week to week, month to month, and we can show this continuous improvement um, to our to our customers and streamline, optimize our our programs to make sure that we have feedback and data in between in between harvests or in between cuts so it allows us to collect more data and and incorporate that into our into our business model and help the farmers with that as well but you're definitely speaking my language i spent a lot of time talking about or, or at least learning about these different types of indicators and what they mean but i, I guess the other thing too right you're the the head of a company um, and ultimately, you have a product that you're bringing to the market. Uh, what if I was to look at this from a practical perspective? What does it cost? Like, can you give me an estimate? Uh, if I have a, oh, let's say, uh, you know, 40 acres is the, the number that we use. 40 acre corn operation in Wisconsin. Uh, what would it cost to have you perform your your analysis and recommendations for it? Yeah, so we'd come out and we'd do a baseline assessment based on the crops, the region. Is your is your is Wisconsin? Is Wisconsin? Is this irrigated corn or is this dryland corn? Is Let's say, very... yeah, <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's, that's a big distinction among our, our among our readership as well. Yeah. But we want to share we want to share the process. So let's let's nail the process down. Like let's treat this like it's a conversation. Like you're the customer and, okay. and I'm me. Oh, well, let's say for the sake of argument, uh, I'm going to go with uh, in Wisconsin. It would probably be mostly irrigated. Uh, water okay. is relatively cheap, and so we can we can move it around cheaply. So let's say irrigated corn. Awesome. So we'd come out and say we we had say I were 
I were closer, I were closer to you. Right now, we'd have to, we'd have to put together, we'd have to factor in travel costs and stuff because I'm in San Diego. Mm-hmm. But I could come out there for for a flat for a flat rate and do a baseline assessment for you. So depending on, I don't know what airfare is to Wisconsin, but say say airfare was say airfare was like a thousand bucks to get me around trip. I'll come out there for twenty five hundred three thousand dollars. We'll come out. We'll do the baseline soil assessment for you. Propose a recommended solution. And we would then, you know, forecast looking at your annual production history and your inputs and your soil, what's in the soil, how much of that, how much of that nitrogen is available, you know, how much is, is plant available versus what's totally there. And then we design a program for that corn to, you know, maximize your yield and return on investment with our program. Before we continue this conversation, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment. Dawn is bringing today's innovative farmers a new strip-till product from the regenerative ag-focused underground agriculture brand. The Pluribus Light is priced like a strip freshener, but it offers the features and performance to be used in the fall or spring as a primary strip-tiller or strip freshener. It's the perfect complement to a cover crop system that just needs a little blacker strip. Check out the Pluribus site at dawnequipment.com. Now let's get back to the conversation. Now what type of soil testing do you employ? Are we talking about haney or mineral? Yeah, so we go out and we'll do a complete, if you have, so the mineral tests, they soil minerals don't change that fast. They don't change that much. So if you have something that's within two years, I'm going to just look at that and we'll save the money at the lab. Um, the haney test, I have not, I have not, I have not seen very consistent Haney numbers from my experience working with working with labs, sending a sample to multiple labs and getting the data back. So that said, I know there's a lot of people working with Haney and they're having good experience with it, but um, where we get, we will run a similar test to Haney that does soil respiration, the Solvita, which there's not, there's not a lot of variables there. It's a very simple test. We understand it very well. We've worked with it for over 10 years. Um, we go out, we incorporate that. That's the biological side of how we can key in what is the health of the biology. We relate that to your chemical and also physical. You know, we've got a, a toolkit that we we carry around with us when we go out to, to the fields and we measure, you know, we'll measure the compaction, we'll measure, you know, we'll dig, we'll dig some holes and take some physical measurements of the soil and you know, look at if it's a, it's a tillage type of operation, which may or may not, we'll quantify it. We'll look at bulk density, you know, is bulk density, is that a measure that we can, we can record and track improvement over the course of the season? How do we measure it? We measure it in multiple, you know, multitude of ways, you know, measure it with probes, measure it with penetrometers, measure it with tractors and sensors on them. Say I'm a no-till operation in our hypothetical example. Uh, what then can you recommend that could help me improve? So you're a no-till operation. So you're going to have higher organic matter in your soil and more, more food essentially for the microbes to process, cycle, and digest in those plants to uptake. We can essentially think of us as like a supercharger for digesting and cycling your organic matter. So we essentially turn your soil profile into a composting program, essentially. Like we're, we're just accelerating the breakdown of organic matter and the production of plant available nutrients. 
So we would be looking more at your organic matter numbers. We would be looking more at your, your bricks, your tissue test numbers um, in order to, to show, we can show you know, more fertility reductions in, in, that, in that type of scenario. Um, for my hard one, because inputs are really high right now, and it looks like herbicides are also going to be really high this year in terms of cost. Um, what kind of return on investment can I expect for my my thousand, my two thousand, three thousand dollars? So we're we're looking at so that would be for us to come out and do the baseline put together program for you, right? Yeah. If you're out there and we'll look at your management practices and what you're using, how much we'll look at the nitrogen balance and we'll see, hey, well, are you putting down too much nitrogen, or are we not? not putting enough out is do we have a bunch of nitrogen that's locked up and we really don't need to fertilize for, for a year or two when we talk about weeds and herbicides right we need to kill weeds we can't have a bunch of weeds in our in our crop it's mainly going to be we're going to help the primary crops so the corn shade out and outgrow those weeds faster right so we're going to outcompete those weeds for the nutrients and for the sunlight and that's how we're going to be able to show those herbicide reductions you know i think this question might've been stimulated. There's a, there's a picture in my head of, of an alfalfa field. We got like a two-year stand and a four-year stand mm. and the four-year stand is running, is running PRM and the two-year stand is not. The two-year stand sprayed 30, 30 bucks an acre of herbicides mm. and had prevalent weeds. Like it looks like 50% weeds in that photo. And then the PRM field had no weeds mm. and four-year stand. So older genetics, you would expect that field to look worse. Um, and that's just what I described to you is the, the plants out competing and shading out those weeds and competing for the sunlight and competing for the nutrients better. So the healthier soil, and this is where, you know, no-till sees a lot of reduction in, in, in special and special chemicals and herbicides and fungicides because we're, we're improving soil health, right. And, in, in one way, and this is, this is just another tool to use. I'm going to ask you to critique yourself a little bit. Um, why would I go with PRM as opposed to some of the open source? Because I, when I talk to farmers, you know, I, I generally find a very encouraging and eager to share audience to talk about right down to things of like what fertilizer they use, what rate, how many. Why would I go with a proprietary, I guess, uh, service rather than some of the open source information that's out there? Do you guys have? Um, do you rely primarily on peer reviewed sources or how does that work? So the reason that you would want to go with, with us versus something that was open sourced is, is there's a phenomenal amount of information out there and what is going to help you the most and what is accurate, what's going to provide you with a return on your time and your money, because there are a lot of programs out there that are extremely time intensive and the amount of time that, that I've and my teams put into developing this system over the last 10 years or so is all of that time is a learning curve, right? And we've been able to hone and optimize this program over the course of that time and cut that 10 year learning curve for you. So when it comes to maintaining a live culture, right? It's, it's kind of like a, a microbrewery or a, or winemaking is, you know, there's a bit of an art to it and there's also science to it that we can go out and we can measure. 
So really what you're getting by working with us is the experience and execution. And, and I'm not sure if anybody else is out there that'll do performance-based contracts is here's what we're going to do for you. You know, we're going to do this. We make sure the program is run properly, right? Because we're maintaining the health of a live culture of a, of a, you know, this, this culture is alive and we need to maintain it and apply it and manage it over the course of the season. So that's where we come in and do that for you and integrate with your team. So you don't have to do, you don't have to be overwhelmed with, uh, you know, a stack of books on your table or trying to figure out, figure out how to, how to integrate all of this into your operation is you sign up with us. We guarantee you results. Okay. Do your recommendations include cover crops? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It blows you meant, my you mind. had mentioned shade and out competing. And that, that reminds me of cover crops, which is a lot of, that's a lot of competing. Yes. I love cover crops, more cover crops, please. <laughs> I, I recently discovered, I recently discovered at a, at a conference that 5% of fallow ground in the state of California has cover crops on it. Wow. 5%. Why do it at all? Yeah. Right. We learned this in elementary school. This was like one of the first things that we learned when we started talking about agriculture, food production, where do bananas come from? Like, I don't understand how we don't have public policy that incentivizes or incentivize cover crops or disincentivize not having cover crops because in this drought, as more water is getting cut, you know, I've got, I've got a tomato, you know, a big tomato operation that I'm working with and we're growing in the spring and I'm asking, you know, what's, what's going in next? Cause I want to make sure that we have the best establishment that you've ever seen on this land, you know, in the 80 years that your family has been farming it and nothing's going in. Well, are you going to put a cover crop in? Nope. We don't have water. That's concerning. <laughs> so I would really like, I would really like one if, if one thing resonates with the audience and one thing to talk about is how can we create policy that incentivizes positive soil health initiatives? The most basic, let's start with cover crops. If we're, if water districts are incentivizing farmers to fallow land or not grow and they're paying a couple thousand bucks an acre to not farm that land, let's talk about having requirements for covering that soil so we don't lose it. Okay. Um, do you include cover crop recommendations as part of your suite of other recommendations as well? Or do you primarily focus on microbial communities and that kind of thing? We primarily focus on soil health via microbiological yeah. solutions. So our, our soil management programs is really what we is really what we specialize in. And we we really just live in that space. Outside of that, you know, I'm very supportive of of, of cover cropping. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Um, and then the question I have is, is this, um, are, are, what distinguishes you guys from, we have a, a popular slogan and you probably maybe heard it yourself, uh, bugs in a jug. What distinguishes your operation from a bugs in a jug outfit? We're still around and we haven't changed our name. <laughs> so, so I get that a lot, especially at conferences. And this is why I don't really do trade show booths or, or anything because there's such, 
a negative connotation with soil biology and biological soil health, you know, throughout, throughout agriculture, you know, there's snake oil, bugs in a jug, snake oil salesmen. Those are, those are, uh, those are pretty offensive and they get old fast. Yeah. And so now I just avoid, I generally avoid those. If, if those words are coming up, I'm not talking to the right people. I need to be talking. I need to be talking to people that are saying, Hey, our cost for UN 32 went from 250 bucks a ton to a thousand bucks a ton. What right. can you do to help us? And how are you going to be making decisions? How are you making decisions with your programming? That's going to affect both my bottom line and my top line. Right. Yeah. Well, and we'll if I sound skeptical, I don't mean to, to be offensive, but I, uh, if I sound skeptical, it's because my readers are skeptical. And then, although I, I will say um, there has been sort of a change in attitude uh, that I've observed, or at least that farmers have told me about, because I've been in ag since November of last year. Um, and what they say is basically 10, 20 years ago, I could safely label all of this as snake oil. Now, some percentage of it is snake oil and i don't know how to tell the valid part from the other part so it's i didn't mean to paint you with a broad brush in that question but there is even though there's a lot of excitement and this area holds a lot of promise especially i think with the advent of crispr and a couple other biological technologies you know there's still a lot of like well what are you trying to sell me kind of stuff and that was the point of asking that question more than anything first off absolutely no offense taken <laughs> i think that's i think that's a wonderful i think that's a beautiful question is what makes you different from this bucket of you know i mean for what makes you different from this whole category that we've treated it before and i I'd, I'd say i'd say work with people that are going to how to differentiate snake oil salesmen from a beneficial biological management program that's going to affect your business, potentially even save, save your crop, save your farm, is work with people who use, who make decisions based off science. They're going out and they're measuring data and they're designing these programs for you. There's not, there's not a silver bullet. There's not a silver bullet out there. If you can get somebody that'll come out and sign a performance-based contract where they will, they will put their skin on the line for your farm and your operation to partner with you, you should probably look at opening that door. Yeah. If, if there isn't that kind of confidence, you know, buyer beware. Yeah, and that's what I've seen is, you know, especially when it comes to cover crops, if uh, they don't ask what your soil type is or they don't ask what you're growing right away, don't buy their seeds because they have no interest in actually matching you with an effective cover crop. Um, I guess I just have uh, two more questions to go. The, the next question is, um, what do you see as the future of the biology, agricultural biological industry in the United States? Where do we go from here? I, I've seen some academic journals pointing towards things like nanotechnology sensors as, um, to, as a means of looking at um, bacterial uh, colonies and populations and, and, and fungi in that. But I'm, I'm really interested here in, in what you see as the next big steps. What, what problems need to be solved? What's over the next horizon? I think our next big steps are really adoption, right? You can have, what was it? Was it uh, Fuji? Fuji made the first digital camera in, what was it, 1970? Yet, yet the usable digital camera that, 
that actually reached consumers didn't didn't reach them for almost 30 more years. So we have this adoption hurdle and this acknowledgement of you know what is as you said before what is bugs in a jug and what what is actually an effective management program for my soil for my plant for my region for my climate you know what's actually moving the needle what's actually making my land more productive while using less chemicals growing more healthy and more resilient plants that are not nutrient deficient. We see our new, our nutrition absorption go up. We see our disease go down, you know, and, and we see water go down, water use go down and, and our, our inputs of chemicals. Um, so I think adoption is, is really a big one. And I, I live in this world, but like my side of agriculture is the big, is the big ag is a bigger, get a bigger tractor. You got tillage problems, get a bigger tractor. And, and we really need a, we really need a cultural shift from that and to start looking more at technology, data, bottom line, top line, tracking these things all the way through, you know, tracking these programs. If I'm spending, if I'm spending X here, how's it translating to Y at the end of the year? Yeah. I think that's, that's really, there's so much technology available. I mean, I, my hat's off to John Deere for their operation center and all the data that they collect on that tractor when it's going through the fields, but training, training the folks that are using those tractors, how to use, how to, how to set it up. Right. Cause if you don't set it up, right. The data is trash. So how, how do we use all this technology that's at our fingertips? How do we use drones? How do we use soil sensors? How do we integrate all the, and this is where this is the second part of you, the answer to your question is where I see this going is we're going to be using a suite of tools and technologies that demonstrate the value and the effects of the biological management practices, programs, products, what have you in the field. So in other words, it sounds like what you're saying is we have, not that we have the, the practical solutions to all of our problems nailed down, but we have a, a good staff at some of them and we should get that out to as many people as possible. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and we should we should look at a, adoption and integration. Okay, um, the last question that I'll ask is the same question I ask at the end of every interview ever. Is there anything else that you wanna talk about or anything else that you feel like we didn't touch on that you wanna mention? Looking at the future, right, with, with agriculture, with your front yard, with growing plants, I think it's really important to look at what does, what does this look like 20 years from now? What does this look like for my kids? What does this look like for my grandkids? When we see these water cuts starting to hit, starting to hit in California, California is kind of, California is on the knife's edge. And the Southwest is on the knife's edge that we're at the bottom of the Colorado River. And if we don't take action, what does this look like where I live? You know, we're, we don't get 50 inches of rain, so we can't. But with increasing, with increasing the, the number of catastrophic environmental events that are happening, with the decrease in water availability, with the decline of water quality, you know, how, how does the future look like? What does it look like if we do? There is no plan B. <laughs> there isn't. We have to restore the health of the soil of what we have now, yesterday. There's, we have to unite 
and pursue these technologies that can help us and management practices that can help us create a sustainable future for, for our, for the next, then the next of kin, you know, if I could, if I could leave, if I could, that's the one thing that, that I don't, I don't know if we clearly, clearly covered is there is no plan B. This is, this is what we have. And this is our chance. You know, we have, we have a finite window of opportunity to, to fix these problems that are affecting the globe and let's do it together. We're all on the same team. We can unite behind that. So let's go. Thanks to Parker Cohn and Brian O'Connor for today's conversation. To hear more podcasts about resource management and strip till, visit striptillfarmer.com slash podcasts or check out our episode library wherever you get your podcasts. And many thanks to the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment for helping to make this Strip Till podcast series possible. From all of us here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Michaela Pauchner. Thanks for listening. <laughs>